morning. Our second reading this morning comes from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, and it can be found on page 576 in your Red Sea Bible. Listen now to this word from God. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why would this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, Master, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. The word of God for the people of God. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, come. Come be at work in our midst. Be with the words of my mouth. Be with the meditations of all of our hearts. That we would hear a word from you. That we would open our ears and our minds and our eyes to what you would have us learn today. Amen. So, I don't know a lot about Naaman. He doesn't get a lot of airtime, but I love Naaman. 
He's a powerful commander of the Syrian military. He's practically invincible with a multitude of winds under his belt. But he is suffering the painful disease of leprosy. He is successful, but he is sick. He can do for himself until he can't. Naaman is all that, but then he isn't. And it makes him desperate. This is what it takes, isn't it, for us to seek growth and new life and exhaustion with the way that things are. So, in Naaman's confusion and his frantic grasping for straws, he opens his ears to a source he likely wouldn't have paid any attention to otherwise. The little Hebrew servant girl who sweeps his floors and washes his dishes. She is young. She is nameless. She is an Israelite. She is a captured slave. And she is brave. She pipes up with enthusiastic compassion and confidence. She uses her voice, which is practically meaningless in her time and place, to point to the prophet of the God she knows and puts her faith in. And she speaks into existence her certainty that, in fact, Naaman can be cured. It shows the, not, the direness of Naaman's situation that he listens to the kitchen maid, whose name is not even important enough to recount in the story. And he sets out to find this prophet that the little servant girl has spoken about. He gets his king to write on royal letterhead permission for him to approach the king of Israel to see about being healed. He packs up tons of silver, tons of gold, and lots of garments, and he sets off. This feels like it's going to be a recipe for success. Military prowess, plus king's personal stamp of approval, plus copious monies and riches, equals you get what you want. And what does Naaman want? He wants healing. He is craving healing. So he's throwing everything at his disposal at his problem. Again, this sounds a lot like us. If we hurl all of our resources at our problem and we pull all the right strings, we use the appropriate connections, then just maybe, maybe the suffering will be lifted. Fingers and toes crossed. So Naaman finds himself a foreign king. The king of Israel reads the king of Aram's letter, and to his credit, he mourns that he's powerless to cure this man. Elisha hears of the king's despair and says, okay, send Naaman to me. And this is the scene. Naaman and his entourage of horses and chariots arrive at the front entrance to Elisha's house. The horses are clopping slowly and rhythmically because the chariots are dragging the ground. They are so laden with wealth. They are heavy with silver. They are heavy with gold. They are heavy with desperation. At the threshold to Elisha's house comes a shocking twist. This brawny, high-ranking commander of an army is met on the doorstep by a messenger. This would be the equivalent of the motorcade of the President of the United States showing up in Elisha's driveway and him sending a text message this is what the text message might say. Go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. Naaman is stunned into silence. 
does Elisha not have the common courtesy to greet a man like me in person? Can the backwoods prophet in this weird land of Israel not be bothered to come out and heal me properly? This is an outrage. It's insulting. Naaman was desperate enough to seek healing from an unlikely source, but to be shunned by that healer and treated without the respect he deserved? Nah, he's out. How utterly embarrassing in front of his men to essentially be told to go jump in the lake, or more accurately, the river. And not clean, appealing water like the rivers of Damascus, which, by the way, are down the street from his own house. Naaman came all this way to swim in the mucky waters of the Jordan? Naaman turns around and leaves in a rage. How fascinating that centuries after this story takes place, we know with vividness the sensation of wounded pride. We know the exact feeling. A friend of mine, Cece, is a spiritual advisor, and she was telling me this story about how she was walking on the beach with a girl she is counseling. It was an exceptionally bright day, and the sun was directly in both of their eyes as they walked along the shore. Cece was listening as her mentee poured out her heart, spilling out all her questions and her doubts. Cece had both a hat and sunglasses, but the girl was squinting into the sun and pausing every few minutes to tear up and to blink her eyes. She needed relief from the glare. My friend thought, Lord, don't make me give her my glasses. (laughs) Not a joke, just then a pair of sunglasses floated in on the next wave. The ocean had obviously taken them from some swimmer a while back, and here they were literally arriving, washed up at her feet. Cece picked them up, brushed off the sea foam, and offered them incredulously to the girl at her side. The girl hesitated. She looked at the glasses and said, But what if those don't suit my face? all know what it's like to have God's provision fall at our feet and to hesitate in skepticism, maybe even turn up our nose. Isn't it heavy living in a world where our worth is so skewed? Isn't it an exhausting charade to angle around grasping for more than we're due yet simultaneously suspecting that we are frauds who aren't worth what we have. It's an interesting paradox that we don't feel worth it, so we flatten ourselves against the wall and we hope not to be noticed, and we nurse our resentments and we triangulate in our relationships, and also we puff ourselves up to this unsustainable height and we swagger off the car dealership lot with a momentary hit of happiness And yet we hide how small we feel beneath the surface, mostly from ourselves. And all of the posturing and the parading of the wealth or the cars or the clothes or the reputation or the spiritual excellence or a five-star rated moral compass, it's all to alleviate the underneath itching. It's not the leprosy or the psoriasis of the skin, but it's an internal squirming this human need we have to do better, to be more, to have more. 
We're fighting tooth and nail to make our way of doing things keep making sense. Show up with a carriage full of gold and get a personal one-on-one life coaching session that leaves us immediately at peace. We want to be healed on our own terms. We don't want to do something humiliatingly simple and beneath us, like to be vulnerable in our nakedness or get out of our comfort zone, to look like we might need help or be willing to do anything required of us, no matter what it looks like to the outside world, to offer up daily prayers to a God that most of the world doesn't recognize. We want to grow and we want to heal, but we don't want to do anything uncomfortable or against the grain of the status quo. Lent is one of those seasons of the Christian calendar that doesn't compute to a world driven by bottom lines and seek security at all cost mentalities. Bigger is better is a mantra of our modern culture. Yet, as we journey to the cross, we seek to decrease ourselves so that the space for God in our lives may increase. And here in Naaman's story, he takes the word of the smallest of the small, a nameless servant girl. There's usually a choice when we're on the edge of transformation. We can cling to life as it was in all its well-known and comfortable misery. Or we can take the plunge. God's provision is usually within our reach, waiting for us to wake up, to open our eyes, and to get out of our own way enough to bathe in a dirty river or put on lopsided sunglasses. Part of the scariness of healing is it requires a change from who we were to who we are becoming. And change is usually uncomfortable, and it always involves unknowns. Change stretches us just far enough out of ourselves to get an inkling of this God thing, this mysterious existence of radical love and confidence. In Naaman, we have a beautifully raw account of someone human just like us, someone who has a need and a hole that he is desperately seeking to fill. And it incites enough faith in him that he travels to another country to consult a stranger about his disease. He's just like us. We know enough to know we need help. And then true to form, we flounder around when the help we so earnestly ask for doesn't look like we wanted it to. And we stamp our feet at the truth spoken in love and we pitch fits that what we prayed for didn't happen and we get offended by God's grace. We thought there was provision and healing, but really what we find is the awkward, uncomfortable, slow-as-Christmas process of growing up. I think the most beautiful part of this whole story comes from the out-of-left-field helpers that swoop in to aid Naaman. A barefoot slave girl and his team of servants both point out to him brazenly and loudly And they point him towards the well of his salvation. Can you imagine servants speaking to their master in such a way? Check your pride and get over it, Naaman. Go jump in. It's not hard. When he can't stomach the method of healing, he gets reminded not too subtly. That, y'all, is the job of the church. 
to nudge one another ever closer to the dirty river of holy mystery in truth and in love and compassion and with staying power we insistently point to the destination we plead with one another to get with the program and accept the love and the mercy that our baptismal waters promise us with tensions high racial dialogue a slow and steady slog political agendas clashing like swords in the air we come to church just as we are refreshingly human just like naaman and just like the servants sometimes we're called to be like the servants in this story to use our voices to live into our worth as the children of god to speak clearly about places that need restoration and the direction we know that healing can come from and sometimes we're called to be like naaman to get humble deflate our egos and toss out our overgrown expectations Naaman does eventually make it to the river. This is the miracle and the mystery. That in a moment of pure inspiration and the busting of his gibbadern, he went to the riverbank. It took a whole lot of folks growing into their voices to point Naaman towards redemption, and he finally gets over his embarrassment. He doesn't about face and he hops into the cloudy waters of healing. The scriptures don't tell us a lot about the internal struggling that occurs in him to enable him to do this, but it came. He could have done this begrudging shuffle to the water, or it could have been a sprint. We don't know. Either way, the bold words of his servants were the last thing he heard before changing his mind and his heart to swerve towards healing. God offers us a steady stream of provision, a river of sustenance in the wilderness. Do we keep it at arm's length, deliberating if it's good enough? Or do we muster up every bit of courage we have and show up with gratitude and trepidation at the water's edge? Spoiler alert, we are human. We do both. Wholeness waits for us in the sludge of the Jordan River. We need only follow the truth-telling of the unnoticed and get the guts to dive in. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.